We'll turn with me in your Bibles to Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3. As I read earlier in Micah chapter 5, there's a well-known prophecy of the coming of Christ and that he would be born in Bethlehem. The Jews of Jesus' day knew that. They were looking for a savior to come from Bethlehem. But as we consider those kinds of Christmas prophecies and we kind of unearth them and dust them off once a year, um, sometimes for us when we go back to the original context of those prophecies, there can be about a bit of confusion. We understand those plain words, chapter 5, verse 2, that Jesus would come from Bethlehem, a ruler would come. But as we read the whole book of Micah, and we even read the surrounding verses around these prophecies, we can easily get confused. We don't know all of what Micah is talking about, and and how, how does Christ's coming in Bethlehem relate to these things around, like Israel and Babylon and bringing the people back to their land and all of these sorts of things, defeating their enemies, the Assyrians. And so what, what I want to do this Christmas here, the next couple weeks, is go back to one of those prophecies and go back to the surrounding context and really seek to understand what's going on in Micah's prophecy and, and how it leads up to that prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. So we'll be looking at Micah chapter 3 and 4 this week, and then a bit more of chapter 4 and chapter 5 next week. First of all, just understanding a bit of the background of Micah. Micah prophesied in 750 to 686 BC, that is several hundred years before Christ came. He was preaching largely to kings of Judah, and we see this in chapter 1 verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So he was preaching, he was prophesying in the days of these three kings of Judah. And what we see in the book of Micah as a whole is three large sections of prophecy. The first from chapter 1 to chapter 2, the second from chapter 3 to 5, and then the third from chapter 6 to 7. And all of these sections of prophecy contain both words of judgment and of salvation. And so we're going to look in depth at this second section of Micah, where we see both judgment and salvation for Israel. Chapters 3 to 5, and the first part here is chapter 3, 1 to chapter 4, verse 5. First of all, what we see in this section is Zion is destroyed under evil rulers in chapter 3. That is the gist of this prophecy. It's a prophecy of judgment on the leaders of Israel, specifically of Judah, about Mount Zion, Jerusalem, that temple mount that Jerusalem was built around, Mount Zion where the temple was. This is what is in view in verse 10, we see Zion and Jerusalem. In, in verse 12, we see Zion and Jerusalem. This is speaking of the kings of Judah and specifically of Jerusalem. And so we here have condemnation of these various heads, various leaders in Israel. First of all, Micah prophesies against the judicial rulers in verses 1 to 4, the rulers of Israel. He says, verse 1, And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? He starts here with a rhetorical question. Is it not for you as, as rulers, as kings in Judah, to understand, to know justice? That word there is mishpat in Hebrew, 
which means a just ruling or proper judgment. This is the main job of governing authorities. We know this even from the New Testament, Romans 13. Governing authorities are to enforce what is good and to punish what is evil. There is to be a justice with these governing authorities. But as Micah questions them, there is a rebuke within this question. These kings did not know justice as they should have. In a broken world, we know that this is not always the case, that that kings rule in justice. In fact, it seems like we could hardly find a regime that is not corrupt, not unjust to some degree. Proverbs 29 verse 4 says, By justice a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. This is what the rulers of Judah were doing. By their injustice, they were tearing down the nation, tearing down Jerusalem. Injustice was the the fruit of their behavior. But we see an immoral compass was the root. Micah continues, he says, you who hate the good and love the evil. Ultimately, at root of this corruption, this injustice, was the fact that these kings loved evil and hated what is good. Their moral compass was turned upside down. They were corrupt at heart, and so this corruption spread into society. Another prophet who prophesied against similar things at the same time is the prophet Amos. And I want to take you here to Amos chapter 5, verses 10 to 15, where Amos also condemns the injustice in his society. And he explains what it looks like on the ground level. He says here in Amos 5.10, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. We see there an unjust society operating. They they lost God's righteousness. They lost a true sense of what was good and evil. And so injustice and corruption increases. The poor and the needy, those, those people who really need justice, are forsaken. They're turned aside in the gate while the rich get richer and they build all these pleasant vineyards and these houses of hewn stone. God proclaims judgment on this people and he notes that in such a society, truth is silent. Verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Verse 13, the prudent keeps silent in such a time. This is what happens in an unjust society. We lose God's morality. Corruption begins to increase and truth is silenced. We could say we are really getting there even in our own nation of Canada. We see that we have lost our moral compass in this nation. We've turned aside from any sense of the Bible's morality. Corruption and injustice have increased and truth is being silenced. More and more people are censored from speaking biblical truth. It is claimed to be offensive and it's snuffed out. Of course, if we look to other countries in the world, we see corruption on a whole nother level. Countries like South Sudan, Ghana, Haiti, the Democratic Republic of Congo, 
These places, we, we, we can scarcely comprehend in the Western world what people are really going through in these places. Micah gives us a graphic image, a graphic metaphor for what it's like to actually live in this kind of unjust society. We see this in Micah 3, verse 2 to 3. It says, these rulers who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. This is as if these kings of Judah are eating their own people alive, tearing their flesh off, tearing their skin off the bones, breaking up their bones, putting them in a pot to cook them and eat them. Obviously, Micah's not saying there was real cannibalism going on in this society, but that's what corruption is like. It is cannibalism to the people who are being eaten alive, to the, to the poor and needy, to those righteous ones who are persecuted, to the general public as the kings get richer and richer and store up all this money for themselves in their greed and people are left to languish and suffer. Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 27 uses a similar metaphor of wolves going to their prey and tearing them apart. Or in Ezekiel 34 verse 3, he speaks of the, these shepherds, the, the kings and rulers of Israel who were feeding themselves on the fat sheep and not feeding the sheep. That is what an unjust society is like. That was what these shepherds of Israel, these rulers were doing to their people. And in verse 4, we see God's fitting judgment for them. Then they will cry to the Lord, he says, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. You can imagine God looking upon this unjust society and he knows and hears all the cries of the people coming up because of the injustice of these kings. Yet those cries are being ignored by the rulers of Judah. And so God says, when you cry, rulers, I will not answer you. It's a fitting judgment. These kings at one time will, will come to the Lord. They will ask for his help, for his mercy. As judgment comes upon them, they will bang on his door, but God will put up in his window the sorry we're closed sign. He will not listen to them. This is a fitting judgment upon the rulers. We see then, secondly, in this chapter, condemnation against the prophets in verses 5 to 8. These were supposed to be spokesmen in the society for God's righteousness, for the covenant law. They were to be the moral compass of the nation. But what we see about them is that they were just as bad. They were not God's spokesmen, but preaching their own word. It says in verse 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. These were like the prosperity preachers of ancient Israel. We know those people, we see them on TV, the TV evangelists who ask people continually for money to give to their ministry, that God would bless them. They preach a good word to those who give to their ministry. These, these prophets were the same in ancient Israel. If someone gave them something to eat, gave them money to feed themselves on, they would preach peace to those people. Peace, peace. God is with you. No harm will come upon you. God, God will not judge you. He, he loves you. Preaching peace, peace, when there was no peace, as Jeremiah 6.14 and 8.11 says. They were preachers, really, of the sins of the people. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. 
as Micah was proclaiming judgment upon the people for their sin, these prophets would say, oh, don't preach those things. You You shouldn't say such things. God will not judge this people. Devastation won't come upon us. And so they they preached cheap grace. They preached that the people could continue on in sin. And God would not care. Verse 11 of chapter 2 says this, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. See, the people were drunkards, immoral people. God says if the prophet would preach strong drink and wine and drunkenness, that would be the preacher that fits this people. And indeed, they were preaching this false security, false peace with God when really God was angry with them for their sins. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 23 as well. Going there for just a moment. Jeremiah 23, verses 16 to 17, we read of these lying prophets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. See, they were comforting people in their sins, in the stubbornness of their own hearts. Many churches do this today. Many preachers are likewise false prophets. I always think of the the United Church in town, St. Paul's United, because you can drive by and you can see what they're about. In their windows and on the screen, they put up these messages. In their window, of course, is the rainbow flag flying, telling people, you can indulge in in any shade of immorality. God accepts you. God loves you. When that is not the word of the Lord, they put up signs that say, love is love and be yourself, believe in yourself. That's exactly what the false prophets We're telling the people in Jeremiah's day, follow your stubborn heart, follow your own way. It's okay. God accepts that. They put up this message that says, hate has no home here. And what do they mean? Well, not not what God would mean by love. Really, they have no hatred for what God hates, no love for what God loves. There are many such false prophets in our day. Second Timothy, Paul said that there would be these kinds of people in the last days. So second Timothy chapter four, verse three says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So we are to preach the word and be faithful to fulfill our ministry, faithfully teaching and preaching the scriptures as they are. We see that another fitting judgment was to come upon the prophets of Micah's day, verse 6 and 7. It says, therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. Micah says for these prophets who are supposed to be people receiving light, receiving revelation, knowledge from God. The lights would go out and they would be utterly ashamed. They would close their mouths because their words would not come to pass. Instead, God would bring judgment upon this people for their sins such that these prophets would have to close their mouths in silence. 
We see this in Jeremiah as well. There's a point where Jeremiah had been prophesying for years and years that Babylon would come against Israel. And and these false prophets were saying, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Peace, peace. God is with us. And then they do come. And Jeremiah says, where are your prophets now to the king? Where are they? They've all gotten up and run away because their word has not come to pass. Friends, soberly, we recognize that there will be many prophets and preachers that will have their mouths closed forever in hell because the false security they proclaimed has not come to pass. Their peace is nowhere to be found. Contrasted with this is Micah the prophet himself. He is a true prophet, and he explains his ministry in verse 8. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah says, I'm filled with power and might. We know that the prophets of God, and really any of us with the word of God, we have a divine power to destroy strongholds. Micah had power to preach the truth, even in the midst of an unjust society. Even though people may persecute him, he had courage and strength to speak God's word. And really, this is because God's Spirit had come upon him. He was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. We know from 2 Peter 1.21, it was the Holy Spirit who carried along these men of old to write and speak God's Word. So Micah is filled with the Holy Spirit and so filled with power to proclaim to the sin of Judah, to his people. And it really is the Holy Spirit who, working together with the Word of God, does bring true conviction and change, who transforms people. Micah was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was also filled with what was lacking in these rulers and prophets of Judah. He was filled with justice, he says. Mishpat, that same word, true knowledge of what is just. And so Micah could proclaim a just and proper judgment against these kings. He knew God's standard. He knew good from evil. And he desired what is good. And so he proclaimed God's justice. And he says there, all of this filling was in order to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel, his sin. By this prophetic power, being filled with justice and might, Micah can discern the sins of the people, and he can call them out for those sins. He shoots the arrow right at the bullseye, and he hits it every time. This prophetic power, the the power of the Word of God, which Hebrews says is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even between joint and marrow, the, the division of soul and spirit. It convicts us deep within and lays us bare before the Lord, before the one with whom we have to do. This is a true prophetic ministry. He is able to call out sin. He's not conforming to the world. He's not trying to be liked by the people. Even though he would encounter opposition for his message, he continued speaking the word of God, being strengthened by the Spirit of God. It's not as if Micah was always trying to be at war with people. He spoke words of great grace and forgiveness from the Lord in addition to judgment. But when God called for a word of judgment, he would speak it faithfully as God's spokesman. So we see the condemnation against the prophets there. And then 
In verses 9 to 12, we see judgment against all the leaders. And he adds another group in verse 11, that is the priests. He mentions here the heads, the priests, the prophets. This is a summary of all the corruption of the leaders and the judgment that is coming upon them for their corruption. Verse 9 says, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. These people detested justice. They treated justice as really an abomination, something to be abhorred. Amos will say in Amos 5, again, they, they turn justice to wormwood, to bitterness, and cast righteousness down to the earth. They want nothing to do with God's justice and righteousness. They make crooked all that is straight, even those good and level and straight and healthy things. They have a way of twisting them and corrupting them, making them into something evil. We do see this even in our society. Good things like the church, like the family institution, like marriage, like sexuality, all of these things have been twisted and corrupted into something that they were never meant to be and our rulers have a part to play in this. We see that these rulers built Zion even with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. It was by their sin and even the shedding of innocent blood. Again, that cannibal metaphor comes back to us. These leaders were building their empire on the backs of the poor, on idolatry, on trusting in foreign alliances rather than trusting in God. They were building it upon the persecution of truth speakers like Micah and even upon such abominable practices as child sacrifice. Is this not the same even in the Western world? We've abandoned God's morality. We've begun to even shed innocent blood in countless numbers, even through abortion. We build our society upon values of sexual immorality and greed. We see ultimately that this was the fundamental motivation of these leaders in verse 11, was greed. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. At the root of all this evil was the love of money, even as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, money is the root of all kinds of evil. There was this covetousness at root, this selfish heart that they wanted more wealth, more power for themselves. And this was what motivated even their own jobs, their, their judgment, their teaching, their divination was influenced by backroom deals. I think of uh, words that, and I, I didn't warn you this morning, Kevin, but you've said this a couple times and it stuck in my brain. If you, if you want to see, um, sorry, I, I'm even forgetting it now, but, but corruption, if you want to see where, where the corruption is, you follow the money, right? I like that, that quote, Kevin. This was exactly what was happening in Israel. You follow the money, you find the root of this corruption. What was driving them was not the spirit of the Lord, but the spirit of mammon. They were public servants serving themselves. And so just punishment comes upon them. But here also Micah notes that they had this false sense of security. In the middle of verse 11, it says, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. They leaned on God, thinking they were trusting in the true God, saying that God was with them 
They comforted themselves with this false peace, even as the prophets were preaching. Peace, peace. They had this false sense of security. Though they were living on in sin and corruption and injustice, they thought we're okay. God is with us. God is gracious to us. No disaster shall come upon us. God will not judge this nation. Everything that Jeremiah and Micah and all those prophets are saying about judgment, don't listen to that. God is for us. God is with us. How dangerous a place to be. So secure in the love of themselves. But Micah prophesies this judgment and ruin upon them in verse 12. He says, therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Jerusalem would be destroyed, Micah says. It would become plowed up like when you get out your rototiller and you go through your garden churning up the soil. Jerusalem, Zion would be churned up because of the corruption of these leaders. And the structures would be laid waste, becoming a heap of ruins. The mountain of the house, even the house of the Lord, the very temple in Jerusalem, this would become a wooded height or a hill just covered with underbrush as the structures were cast down. Vegetation would begin to grow up around the stones. This was the, the judgment to come upon Jerusalem for the corruption and wickedness of this society and its leaders. Now, one might ask the question at this point, was this prophecy fulfilled? Did this really come to pass? Did the judgment come? Well, it's interesting to note if we actually look at the reigns of the kings of Judah that Micah was prophesying to. We see that Jotham, that first king, was largely a good king. Second Kings says that, that he was good, walking in the ways of David. Only there were some corrupt elements. He left the high places of worship up, where the people would go wherever they wanted and, and worship idols. He didn't, he didn't touch those. And he himself was not a worshiper. It says that he did not come into the temple. Obviously, he was not much of a religious person himself, though he had a largely just reign. But it says even in his time that the people followed corrupt practices. So the people of that day were corrupt. And then we see the king to follow Ahaz was a much darker story. Ahaz was a wicked unbeliever. And he even changed the temple of God after a, a pagan temple he had seen on a trip to Damascus. He came back to Jerusalem. He says, we need to worship the way that these, these pagans do, rearrange the furniture. We see that Ahaz was a man who refused to trust God. Rather, he trusted foreign alliances, which turned out badly for him. And so... It is my understanding that Micah is likely preaching this message to Ahaz and then into the time of Hezekiah. But it is very interesting to note that Hezekiah heard this message, believed in the Lord, feared him, entreated his favor, and God actually relented from this judgment. It says as much in Jeremiah chapter 26. I'll have you turn there for a moment. Jeremiah 26, verses 18 to 20. 18 to 19, sorry. Jeremiah is preaching really the same message as Micah a couple hundred years later. And the people begin to be in an uproar. The, the prophets and priests grab Jeremiah. They're, they're ready to sentence him to death because of these words that were so abhorrent in their ears. Verse 16 says, Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, 
Micah of Morasheth, that's our prophet, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, and this is, this is Micah 3 verse 12, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. What we see is that Micah's message was actually heard. And the judgment that God proclaimed against the kings in that day did not come in their day. Because Hezekiah turned to the Lord. He listened. And God had mercy, relenting from this punishment. Now the kings of Jeremiah's day did not listen to this same word. And so really this word did come to pass. After a delay in 586 BC, Babylon came and they destroyed Jerusalem because of the wickedness of the people. So in a sense, we could say this, this prophecy was fulfilled and it was not fulfilled. It was delayed for a time and then fulfilled in the time of Jeremiah. Now against the backdrop of this devastating prophecy of, of judgment under these wicked rulers, a very dark and black picture, we have this light that comes shining through as Micah in the next chapter begins to proclaim not judgment, not doom for Israel, but rather hope and restoration and the exaltation of Zion, which had been leveled and made a heap of ruins. In chapter 4, verse 1 to 5, we see Zion exalted under the Lord's rule. Under Yahweh's rule, Zion would be exalted in a future time. So in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Micah is looking into the future and he says in latter times, in end or future days, Zion will be exalted. This is the future from Micah's vantage point. But really what we have to understand is that this is not only future for us. This is actually past and present for us. Because these latter days began to come up to pass in the New Testament times. The New Testament tells us that we are living in the last days. Maybe that sounds strange to you. We have a lot of teaching today that talks about the last days and makes a hype about the end times and says that this is all some future thing to happen. But if we read texts like Acts chapter 2 verse 17 or Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, James 5.3, 2 Timothy 3.1, 2 Peter 3.3, 3, we could go on. These texts tell us that we are living in what the apostles call the last days. These are the latter days that Micah even prophesied of. It is the gospel age. It is the church age. As 1 Corinthians 10.11 says, Paul says to the Corinthians, Upon you the end of the ages has come. There is a fulfillment of this prophecy that has already begun. Yet at the same time, we need to remember that the prophets saw things darkly compared to how clearly we see things. Now after the New Testament period, they didn't see things so clearly as we did. And as they prophesied about the future, this illustration has been given. I gave it this morning in Sunday school. But the prophets were, as it were, far away from distant mountains. And you know when you look at mountains or you drive towards Jasper and you see mountain ranges. 
All these mountain peaks look like they're together. But then as you go closer, you even come to the foot of one of those mountains, or you, you climb a mountain, you go over it, you see that there's great distance between these mountains. That is what looking at this future time was like for the prophets. They could see the kingdom of God coming. They could see everything that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ from his first advent to his second advent and the new creation. And they saw, saw it all as if in one mountain range, one big event. But what we see as we look back is that there's things here that have already been fulfilled and even fulfilled in, in part in ways. But there's also things that have not yet been fulfilled completely. But what is the subject then of this prophecy? It is for a future time for Micah. The subject of the prophecy is the mountain of the house of the Lord. He was just speaking of Jerusalem and Mount Zion, that temple mount. And he speaks again of this Mount Zion, the mountain of the, the house of God, the temple of God. And what we see here is that Mount Zion, we have to understand what it represented in the Old Testament times. This was the center of God's rule and reign in ancient Israel. It was his very throne, the, the temple of God, and it was the central place of his worship. It was the place from which the reign of God and the kingdom of God went out. But as the New Testament teaches us, Hebrews 8, 1 to 5, these were types and shadows. The earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, the earthly Jerusalem, we could say, was a type and shadow, really a shadow of a truer reality that we participate in now. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24 is especially insightful on this topic of Mount Zion. Speaking to Christians, the writer says in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly or church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We see that in the coming of Christ, he sets up a kingdom, as even Hebrews 12, 28 would say, that cannot be shaken. And we have received this kingdom in Jesus Christ. If we've come to know Christ and his shed blood and we've trusted in him, he's our mediator. He brings us, as it were, into heaven, into the kingdom of God. We participate in this heavenly Jerusalem, this heavenly city, this better country through Jesus Christ. And so Micah here is really prophesying about the kingdom of Jesus Christ which is even expressed in his church on earth. And this is something that is being fulfilled now in the church of God, in the kingdom of Christ, and also has more fulfillment to come in the future. What do we see about this kingdom of Christ in these verses? Micah 4 verse 1 continues, and it talks about the exaltation of this kingdom. In verse 1, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. It is established here. This kingdom of Christ is established. It's firmly fixed on a permanent footing, like a building now built on its foundation. And as Hebrews said, it shall never be shaken. This kingdom of Christ remains forever. It's been established in the coming of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and ascension to glory. He is now reigning and ruling, bringing people through faith 
into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And so it has been established. Jesus said, I will build my church. And we see it is established and exalted here as the highest of the mountains. That word highest there is Rosh in Hebrew. It was used in the previous chapter of the heads of Jerusalem. This would be the head, the the leader among the mountains and hills. In those days, cities and kingdoms were built upon mountains or, or hills in order to be the best possible defense against enemies. And what Micah is saying is that this kingdom is going to be established, exalted, lifted up, supreme above all other kingdoms. We see this prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. I mentioned already in Sunday school this morning, but a rock that comes out of a mountain by no human hand, and it's thrown at these kingdoms of the earth and shatters them in pieces. This is the kingdom of Christ that shall never be destroyed, but he reigns forever and ever as the supreme Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The kingdom will be exalted, Micah says. And there's also here, secondly, the attraction and expansion of the kingdom. We see here, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He says, people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come. These are words referring to the Gentile nations. This is what Paul calls in the New Testament, the mystery of Christ, the mystery hidden for long ages. Jews wrestled with comprehending this in the New Testament period, that it was not just Israel as as one single nation that God was going to deal with. Rather, he was going to bring in people from all nations into his kingdom, that we also are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, one new man in him. And so all nations would be flowing, streaming into this kingdom of God. This is what Micah is seeing. Like a magnet, the kingdom of Christ brings people from all kinds of nations. They're attracted into it. And we see the expansion of it as they come, as they are taught, as it were, in the school of Christ. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. They come into this kingdom in order that they may be taught his ways, that they may walk in his paths. They receive Christ Jesus the Lord and then begin to walk in him, walking in good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. They are taught of God, even these Gentiles, streaming into the church by the grace of God. It says here that out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is the means by which people are taught of God. The word of God goes out from the kingdom of Christ. The law, the instruction of Yahweh, even the gospel of Jesus Christ goes out to all nations. And they hear of it. They learn of this God. And they continue to walk in his paths. And we know that that word, that gospel initially went out of the physical, earthly Jerusalem. It started there in Jerusalem with those disciples of Jesus Christ. And he told them in Acts 1.8 that the Spirit of God would come upon them. And this word would spread to Judea and to Samaria and into the ends of the earth in greater and greater concentric circles. This is the word of God going out from Zion. And it continues To go out from the heavenly Zion, from the church of God as we proclaim the word, as we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. People come to know the Lord. 
and they begin to walk in his ways. The kingdom of Christ is not built up with blood or iniquity as that kingdom of Israel was, but with the law and word of God. We see also here the just ruler of the kingdom in verse 3. It says, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. Again, justice or judgment. This is a similar word here to mishpat as we've seen earlier. Christ comes as the king of kings and he brings a just and righteous reign to the nations. Wherever his courts are set up, wherever the church of God exists, there is justice, there is righteousness. He rules with a just and equitous reign. And we know that in the end, he will come again to judge the world in righteousness. All nations and all of their deeds will be laid bare before Jesus Christ as his judgment seat is set up and he decides all of their disputes and judgments. This is our just Lord Jesus Christ. He does not rule for greedy purposes as those rulers of Judah. He does not rule for shameful gain or the blood of others. Rather, we see our King Jesus Christ emptied himself, came down from heaven, humbly took our flesh upon himself and gave himself for us upon the cross. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we enter this kingdom not by unjust blood, but by the blood of the innocent Jesus Christ. And we are justified, made righteous in his sight through Jesus. And so Jesus is our just and righteous king of this kingdom. We see as we go on in verse 3 and in verse 4, the peace and security of that kingdom. It says as this just rule begins to hold sway that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There is a peace about this kingdom as Jesus is the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah 9 says, as Ephesians 2 says he brought peace by the blood of his cross. He brings peace between us and God, peace between men, and peace within ourselves. All Christ's disciples become peacemakers. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And as people learn of Christ, learn of his peace, they begin to strive for peace with all people, and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, as Hebrews 12 says. And as Romans 12 notes, we're to strive for peace with all people. As much as it depends upon us, we become people of peace in Jesus Christ. As it were, beating our swords, beating them into dust, crushing them, turning them into plowshares, into instruments of fruitfulness and blessing. We begin to use our energies not to war against one another, but to build each other up. Spears being turned into pruning hooks, these hooks that were used to cut figs off of trees. And so again, an image of fruitfulness coming out of what was once a war, quarreling, angry people. The advent of Christ brings peace Matt Papa has a song where he says, I have a peace with God and man, for you have reconciled me. I was at war, you came a friend to serve and stand beside me. Though wounds are deep and anger burns, you showed me true forgiveness. So I'll extend what I have learned, the gift, the peace of God is. We see a 
interesting illustration of this in the Christmas truce of 1914. At that time, World War I was raging, but the conflicts began to slow down. And there was a ceasefire, and enemies began to come out of their trenches and meet in the middle on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and they began to play together and exchange gifts and sing carols with each other. That's an illustration of how the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, brings peace between people. Friends, we know that there are still wars in the world and in the church today, but a new earth will come where it'll be like a still lake with no wars stirring up the waters. There will be a complete peace as the fullness of Jesus' reign comes upon this earth. No more wars, no more fights. The lion will dwell with the lamb. There will be universal peace across the earth for the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We see that this advent of Christ and his kingdom brings not only peace but security here in verse 4. It says, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. If you're in a war-torn country, do you have time to simply sit in your backyard and enjoy your vines of grapes and your fig trees, maybe today our, our Saskatoon bushes and, and our gardens, and sit there in security and, and peace with nothing to make you afraid? No. But when the peace of Christ comes, such security will be found in all places. I think of our Ukrainian friends who had to flee because of war. War brings insecurity. But because in Christ we have peace, we also have security even now. Because of our hope of heaven, because our identity is firmly fixed in Jesus Christ, and we know we are inheritors of a better country and a city to come, a better and abiding possession. This is why in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, the Hebrews, it, it says of them that they were even able to joyfully accept the plundering of their property because they had a better possession and an abiding one. When we have security in Christ, even if things are taken from us, even if we have no land of our own anymore. Even if we have to flee, we know we're secure in Jesus Christ. And again, this is a perfect picture of the final Sabbath rest we will have in heaven. Nothing anymore to make us afraid at all, to even tempt us to fear. We will be secure in Christ's consummated kingdom forever. This is the kingdom of Christ that Micah saw would be set up in future days. And he says here in verse 5, then he describes the people of that kingdom. He says, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Micah at that time could look at the unbelieving nations. They were all walking. They all had their own individual gods they would worship, walking in the name of their gods. But the true people of God in Israel, even at that time, walked in the name of Yahweh their God and would continue to do so forever. Even as we see in this vision, people from all nations, Gentiles would come into this kingdom and they join this true people of God who walk in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are only really two nations in this world, two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God in Christ. And we, friends, we will be the people of that kingdom. We will walk in Christ's name forever and ever 
Friends, as we consider this whole prophecy together, a few things. First of all, we need to see here a warning of judgment and yet a promise of grace. This is a reminder that God is a just and holy God, a consuming fire, and he will come in judgment upon a corrupt people and corrupt leaders. This is a word to take heed to, to listen to like Hezekiah, and to fear and to tremble before God, and to turn to Christ and trust in him, because as happened with Hezekiah, if we turn to the Lord, if we come in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, he will relent even from his judgment upon us. He will relent. He will have mercy. Even as Micah closes off his prophecy in chapter 7, he says, verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show your faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Friend, if you come to Jesus Christ, if you turn to him, you will be forgiven of all your sins. He will cast them into the depths of the sea, trample them underfoot, and have compassion upon you. That is the promise of God's grace in Jesus Christ. As Peter said at Pentecost, you're to save yourselves from this crooked generation. Even though all the, the rest of the world may be corrupt, you can escape that corruption and come back to the shepherd and overseer of your souls who has died upon the cross for your sins. If you believe in him, your sins will be washed away. You will enter into this blessed kingdom of Christ. Secondly, we are to be thankful and to offer reverent worship and obedience to offer our lives to God in view of having received this kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12 instructs us in this way. It says, let us be grateful for having received a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship in reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Jesus Christ's kingdom has been high and lifted up. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have come into it. You have come to this Mount Zion. And so you are to be grateful that Jesus Christ, by the blood of the new covenant, has wiped away your sins, that you might be transferred into this kingdom and live on in gratefulness, in rejoicing, in offering up a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord Jesus Christ, doing everything in his name with reverence and awe, amazed at the grace of God that though he is holy, though he is still a consuming fire, though he will yet come in judgment upon the nations, for you he has given grace to enter his kingdom. What gratefulness, what thankfulness we're to have as we come into this kingdom. And we are to continue, as this passage says, being taught God's ways, walking in his paths. We're not merely to be hearers of the gospel, but doers of the word of God. As we come to church, even this visible expression of the, the kingdom of God on earth we're continually being taught the ways of Jesus Christ to follow him more closely as the Lord who has so loved us. He gave himself for us, so we give ourselves to him in gratefulness to walk in good works, which he has prepared. And friends, thirdly, we are to advance this kingdom to 
all the nations. This prophecy here will be completely fulfilled. People from all nations will gather together around the throne of God and the Lamb, praising Him for His mercy. A countless multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But friends, this prophecy will not be fulfilled without the work of the church of Jesus Christ. This is our calling now, is to expand this kingdom, to expand the borders of Zion, to bring more people in. There are so many unreached yet in Turkey, in India, in Mongolia, in places like these. We're to expand the borders of Zion, praying, praying for these nations, gathering Sunday mornings to pray as a ministry to these nations, praying that laborers would be raised up for the kingdom of Christ and working to that end, bringing up, teaching people to be faithful servants and to go to these nations. And we in our daily lives must be as missionaries, people who like verse 2 says, say to others, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. There's that song, I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. We're to say to our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters, the people in the city, come, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Come find the peace and security that is in Jesus Christ. Come hear the true gospel of peace and come under the reign of this Prince of Peace. May his kingdom spread in this earth and endure forever and ever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this vision of hope, Lord, that we have e even experienced and entered into, God. We, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in our commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Lord, and that each heart here would be touched by the, the peace and security that they have in Jesus Christ this morning. And that those, again, who are still outside of your people, Lord, would come and trust in you and know your peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.